Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mount Shoup. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. This episode of Going Deep, we're very excited to have an impact player in women's athletics, professional athletics on the global stage. Uh, I should say the global pitch, Uh, not just the local one, but we're lucky because she is local right here in Western North Carolina. We, We welcome Megan Burke, who is the executive director of the Players Association of the National Women's Soccer League. And um, Megan is is here to talk to us about all kinds of things, but we're mostly excited to hear because she's been a part of history being made in these last few years. And so we feel so lucky and um, just we're just so excited to have you here, Megan. Welcome to Going Deep. Oh, thank you so much, Marcia, for the lovely introduction. And thank you to you and John for having me on. I really I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. We we like on Going Deep to have our guests kind of introduce yourself to our listeners tell tell our listeners a little bit about you sure um so i was born and raised in st louis i'm like fourth fifth generation st louis go cardinals um and i uh i'm a former player i'm currently a licensed attorney licensed here in the state of north carolina and had been practicing at a small firm brazel and burke for more than a decade um, but I initially moved to Asheville in 2004 because um, I was chasing the soccer. Um, I played on professional and semi-professional teams for about 10 years. Um, I played here, there, and everywhere. And actually, I have to do it in order. I, I drop one. So I, I you know, grew up playing youth soccer in St. Louis. I was on the U16 U.S. national team and then played at St. Louis University um, and had an, you know, an awesome time playing for the Billikens there. Um, I played during college in the W league, which is like a pre-pro league. I played in Colorado and Memphis. Um, and then I was drafted to play for the Carolina courage in the first women's professional league, the WSA, um, that league folded the season that I played for it. Uh, and then, so I, you know, tried to go on trial with teams in England and there were some visa issues and couldn't sort it out, came to Asheville in 2004. And that was kind of where I started to figure out what, you know, what life I sort of think about, I should say, like, what would life look like if I couldn't play soccer professionally? And I met my wife here, Jasmine Bichara. Um, So we've been together about 18 years. And uh, I then played in England for the Bristol Rivers. We got that figured out. Um, Came back and played in St. Louis uh, in a WPSL, which is a, another kind of semi-pro league. I then um, I worked while I was playing in, in St. Louis. I worked for an investor in Major League Soccer who also eventually launched what became St. Louis Athletica, the women's pro team in WPS. Um, but I knew I wanted to play and I knew I wanted to go to law school. So I, we moved to Boston and I went to law school at Northeastern. And while I was there, I played for the Boston Renegades in the W League. Um, I had to get a spinal surgery. I found I had a really terrible uh, spinal injury from my playing days that required a spinal fusion. And so I didn't get to play in 2009 when the WPS launched. I basically at 29 became like the old, I was basically like a tryout player all over again. 
uh, and hit the tryout circuit, which is actually way more fun than it sounds. Um, and then, so I tried out for a bunch of teams and latched on with the Chicago red stars. Uh, and then I signed a, a contract with New Jersey sky blue near the end of the season. Um, and then after that, I, you know, finished out law school, took the bar exam and we always knew Asheville was home. And so we came back home in 2010 and I started practicing law and, uh, yeah, now, um, Jasmine and I have three kids, Calvin, Lily, and Wyatt, seven and 23 year olds and, um, Western North Carolina's home. What a, what a journey. I mean, like, I can't imagine there are many humans that have as much kind of <laughs> different experiences with the sport. I mean, you, you came along in a time, I'm not going to ask you your age. I, I know you're younger than me. So, so, yeah. So, I mean, you came along in a time when, cause, cause I was coming of age, you know, in sports right when title nine just right was created. So, you know, I played on boys soccer teams, like that wasn't going to be, there wasn't, there wasn't women's soccer, you know, um, and, and so went the running route, but you really came along, you know, just enough after that, that there was, there were real viable options. And I mean, you were also blazing a trail for women's soccer, um, to be a real thing. I mean, when, and it's become a real, a real thing in this country, a premier, Mm-hmm. opportunity for, for women and sports and for girls and sports. So you've been right there kind of riding the edge of that. I can't, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I can't imagine a better person <laughs> with your experiences and your training and your expertise to do what you're doing now with the players association. I, I mean, I do feel like this, um, this job does kind of feel like a calling, you know, it does feel mm-hmm. like I was sort of made to like, this feels like a good fit. You know, this is like, this is what mm-hmm. I want to be. Doing. This feels like I was meant to be in this role at this time and things that happened in the past year. I mean, it still happens every day where I'm just surprised at how like, Oh, like I'm so glad I had, you know, more than a decade of criminal defense experience before being in this role. Or I'm so glad mm-hmm. I had the for it. And the fact that I'm a former player, I think is a way, you know, it, it helps build the trust and relationship with players now. Totally. And a player who's had to travel and who's had to, be resourceful and put things together and who's experienced injury. And I mean, all of those things are just so important. There's definitely, I mean, you know, we launched during the CBA negotiation last year, the no more side hustles campaign to draw attention to what women's soccer players were doing to survive, which is not unlike, you know, the AFL CIO has the campaign. One job should be enough, which is very much a mm-hmm. mantra of the modern labor movement. And, and I do feel like um, it, you know, we know a lot about the stars of the U S women's national team. And I'm sure we'll talk about that and the international players, but there's this whole swath of these players who are sort of the, like when I was in high school, my, my high school coach had this saying, you know, you can only have one piano player, but you need a ton of piano movers, you know, like, mm-hmm. and it's true that there is this whole, like these amazing humans who are piano movers, who are not the people you know about, but you should know about. And, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of went from like having a youth and college soccer experience that was pretty, like, it was pretty sweet. You know, <laughs> I started mm-hmm. I played all the time things, you know, things went really well. And then my pro career is very much a story of like, things failed, leagues failed, mm-hmm. clubs failed. Um, I have stories that I probably can't repeat on the record about trying to get back in the country after playing in England, you know, like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all those things, the, the odd jobs, five jobs at the same time, scrubbing toilets and, you know, you mm-hmm. moving around, living out of a duffel bag. And it's very much, it's not the glamorous lifestyle people think of.
I certainly live that. But what's interesting about kind of those of us who've played sports, women and girls who've played sports, like at the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, we're, we're actually living through this amazing moment in time. So, yes. you know, I, I was born in 1980, you know, title nine was 1972. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. Yes. Year. Year, celebrating the 10th year of NWSL, the longest the women's pro sport or pro league has lasted in soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, one of my best friends and actually the woman who introduced Jasmine and me right here in Asheville, Stacy Enos played on the first mm-hmm. ever U S women's national team in 1985, you know, and that was a time when I started playing soccer in 1983 and my mom to her infinite credit, who did not have opportunities to play sports. My mom just had this little girl who wanted to carry a football or a soccer ball or a baseball around every day. And she's like, I should sign it for her. It was like, I should sign you up for sports. You're interested in sports. <laughs> yeah. So she literally just picked up the phone and would call like the YMCA to concrete it. Like, will you let a girl play on your team? No. Okay. Bye. Will you let a girl play? It? Great. Okay. I'm coming. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. credit to my mom for doing that. And, and my cousin, Andrea, who now lives in Eastern Tennessee, um, went with me and it, we were the only two girls in the team. <laughs> You know, but we played and we played, you know, in an indoor team kind of for several years and then club travel soccer had started. And so I got to do that and that kind of took off. But, you know, and then with Title IX kind of really being enforced in the 90s, you saw the proliferation of women's college programs. Yeah. Created more opportunity and and the 99 World Cup, of course, and then WSA launching. But then what I've the story of my pro career and what I've lived is sort of the the topsy-turvy nature of it all. We saw this trajectory, but it's not a straight line. And, and right. Not, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the business of sports, like right. you, you had experiences to just really, you know, kind of really clinch this love and this, and this also sense of like horizon of possibility. But then when it becomes a business, that's when it's really, it's really tangled up with all the things that make it so tenuous and, and cutthroat and also sometimes really, um, devastating, you know, I mean, like, and it's like, you have to get all of that stuff to be able to be a player's advocate in professional sports, I believe, you know, and I know John has many, many thoughts on that. Well, it's interesting to me that as title nine came along, I mean, women's soccer in particular in the United States benefited greatly and and, and women's soccer rose to the the top of the world. Like you said, kind of peaking in maybe the 1999 World Cup. I mean, we all remember that. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me like there were a lot of kind of haphazard leagues that you were jumping around. You, I think you said a couple of times I was in this league and then it folded. That's well, right. the, the National Women's Soccer League, I know, was founded about a decade ago in 2012. And they started their first season in 2013 when they played. It seems to me that within a decade of this league being organized, and I think they just went from 10 to 12 teams this season, correct? A player's association within the first decade of a league being created has got to be pretty uncommon because Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, I'm willing to bet the NBA 75 years old. I'm willing to bet 65 years ago there was not a player's union. Yet, This happens within the first decade of 
the National Women's Soccer League developing. Well, unions are a tricky thing. Some people want to join. Some people don't want to join. Some people want to contribute. I mean, this isn't just a story of sports. I mean, we're seeing today unions being voted up and being voted down. Mm-hmm. How did the National Women's Soccer League, though, what's the word? Is it coalesce to right. form this union so quickly when it's kind of been haphazard? That's a great question. Um, I was involved in the in the second women's pro league, the WPS. I helped organize the WPS Players Union in 2010, but it never because the league came and went within three years. We never negotiated a collective bargaining agreement. Um, so this, to my knowledge, is the first CBA in domestic women's pro soccer history here in the United States. Um, there might be a few elsewhere around the world, but it's it's pretty unique and. You know, you raise a really interesting point, and I, and I often have to remind myself of this, and I talk about this with players. You sort of have to put yourself in a time capsule and go back and say, okay, where was the NBA in the 10th season? Where was Major League Baseball in the 10th season? Where was NFL in the 10th season? And I think it's, it's important to do that because in the business case, as Marcia just pointed out, we get held as women's athletes to a standard that men weren't even at five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so you have to appreciate like the extra, first of all, put aside the business case, let's talk about the evolution of sport. In just 50 years, women's bodies and the performance of the various sports that we watch is just extraordinary. I mean, athletes are doing now things we couldn't do 10, 12, 15 years ago when I was in college. We've just evolved so fast. It's really remarkable. And you kind of have to pause over that for a minute and appreciate like that's despite systemic dis- discrimination and deprivation of opportunity. What happens when we invest in women? What is the world going to look like in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? What will my daughter be able to do, you know, that I didn't have the opportunity to do and that my mom didn't have the opportunity to do. So, you know, we have to, we do have to put it in that context. And actually, as it relates to the CBA, it's something I talk about um, with our players, which is we were able to secure, for example, um, a broadcast profit sharing arrangement in this contract. Um, if the league is profitable and secures a profitable broadcast deal, 10% of those proceeds will go into player compensation. I'm unaware of another CBA in history that secured a broadcast profit sharing arrangement. We know it's in the NFL now, but I mean, you know, I don't know what I, I'd, I would love for someone to write that authoritative history. Cause I would nerd out about like just the history of CBAs and sports, but we know, for example, that Major League Soccer didn't have free agency until four or five years ago, you know, and it, they've been around since the late 90s. So we in our first contract in the first 10 years of the league, even though wages, our minimum salary is 35 grand plus they get housing and some other benefits, even though on the grand scheme of things, that's not you know, terribly significant. It's enough to maybe get by on, but it's not going to you're not going to retire on that by a long shot it's still relative to our growth strong, right? Like there's some really bursts in there and that speaks to the, so to answer your other question, I think this is really important too about um, typically labor unions will different than the Amazon example, but typically you have a big national labor union that comes in and might organize someone. It's like the communication workers of America might come in and organize some journalists at a local newspaper or, 
they actually helped organize the men's second division pro soccer players. Um, in our instance, this really was like grassroots ground level player led organizing players got together and said, we need one voice. Solidarity is our strength. We can't achieve alone what we could together. We need to come together and form, form a labor union. And that's actually how I got looped back in. I was here in Asheville. I was actually driving to the gym one day, like between court handling, you know, misdemeanor pleas or whatever I was doing that day. And an old teammate called and said, Hey, um, we just did a thing. Um, we just organized a union. Um, and I was waiting for the, like, you know, your lawyer, could you, and she literally was like, uh, we're going to announce the press. We're going to put out a press release and we need a legitimate looking phone number. Can we use yours? And I said, <laughs> when is this happening? I, I'm like, you know, I'm game. <laughs> I'm like ride or die with my homies. So I was like, sure. When's this happening? She's like within an hour. And I was like, oh, I need to turn around and go back. We'll be right back with our guest, Megan Burke, the executive director of the Players Association of the National Women's Soccer League. Welcome back to Going Deep, where we're continuing our fascinating conversation with the executive director of the Players Association of the National Women's Soccer League, Megan Burke. I think sometimes, not sometimes, I think often unions are benefiting some of the people that don't have as much power. I mean, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan and Rose Lavelle are probably going to be OK, even if there's not a union. But the people on a journey like you've been on, maybe I, I think there's significant things about uh, a, a salary level of thirty five thousand, you know, and up a, a minimum salary. But you also secured a lot of non-financial benefits, like an off-season holiday, seven-day break during the season. Uh, 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 Healthcare just stuff. Yeah, well, just professionalism within, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 the soccer league, i.e. you're playing on real soccer fields. You've got quality locker rooms. Mm-hmm. But as Marcia said, the, the mental health care that is incorporated in this, I think, too, is really uncommon. And uh, it's not just some women's health issues that you've directed, but just mental health issues that, let alone it's only in the first decade, this is the first collective bargaining agreement. And you're hitting some things other people have never Nobody has done. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, the interesting thing is that it's based on the lived experience in, in these players, yeah. workers in workers' lives. And, and yours. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that we, you know, there's a couple of pieces that inform this. First was, you know, we, I was very much aware of the systemic abuse in our sport before it all became out, uh, before it all became sort of international headline news and other people started reading about it, partly because I grew up in the sport and you hear the stories and you know what players mm-hmm. have endured um you also just look around and see you know in a bargaining unit where 100 of the workers are either women or we have two out trans players um non-binary identifying athletes and 100 or close to 100 of their bosses are men like there's something going on there that we should at least pause over if we were in any other work environment someone would kind of pause and just say what's that about right, right. Um, so there these are issues we'd always known about and then when these stories came out, 
last fall, um, we really got to work on thinking, okay, it's not enough to just like, we're going to call this out. We're going to speak out against it, but we want to come up with a solution. Like we don't just this, we care about this league. We care about this sport. Um, it's not just about, you know, so much of what we'd all lived through in, in my generation of players was like the rise and fall of leagues, right? Like the demise of the w, WSA. The mm-hmm. And it would have been too easy to just say, we're going to shut this whole thing down. Right. It's too dysfunctional. It's beyond saving. And players have still to this day, believe in our hearts, like this is worth saving. There's, we just, we care enough about it that we want to transform it. And one way to do it is to talk about something that we all know is true, which is people struggle with mental health issues. They struggle with trauma. They struggle with anxiety and depression. And I'm not saying that addressing mental health is a solution to systemic abuse, Mm -hmm. but it's one tool in the toolbox. We also have a very serious pending joint investigation. Like I'm a lawyer, so we're not just approaching it from one avenue, but um, we have up to six months paid mental health leave in in NWSL. And it was really powerful to go to the bargaining table with NWSL in the week that these stories came out and say, here, we want this. And it, what was cool about the negotiation was that I think this speaks to the evolution that we, our societies had around mental health and how we talk about these things. The response was not no way, no how we wouldn't even entertain it. You know, everyone has bad days or whatever sort of kind of cliche or glib things people say about mental health. It was like, Oh, we've read the article. We see what Mana and Sinead and Kaya have lived with. This is real. This is not some squishy thing. This is a very tangible thing we can get our mm-hmm. arms around. It's probably not going to be commonly used, but when it's used, by God, we need it. And shortly after that, we've had tragically at least two suicides in the soccer community that we're aware mm-hmm. of. And, it, you know, this is real. This is very serious. And my hope is that by talking about it more openly and pointing to this as one of t- the tools in the toolbox that we can set a new standard in sports, but in, in also in the workplace, that this is a very, this, this should not stand alone. This should not be trend setting. This should be something that like everyone has. A very small fraction of human beings have had up close experiences of professional sports. <laughs> And I just want our listeners to understand how radical that is, how very different that is than other professional leagues. I mean, we we have had, you know, we had many years in the NFL and um, and just a totally different atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And instead of like the ways that players mental health and their and their physical health and brain injuries and stuff have been dealt with in the NFL has really been more about let's cover our butts let's try to minimize the damage and say the things people want to hear but not really do it and protecting players isn't our top priority because in football there's always somebody else that'll do the job mm-hmm. it, if you think this is a crappy atmosphere then go right ahead. There's somebody else that wants in, you know? And so what, what I'm hearing that's so radical is this ground up creation of a culture that is much more around this kind of collective wisdom. Like this is what it takes to really, for this to not kill us, you know, for this to be not only just a positive experience, but something that creates a life where, you know, you can make it work. And 
And that's good for everybody. And that's just such a different culture than other leagues. Our son is a, a professional rugby player, which is also a very young major league. Rugby is a young league. It's only what, four years in old? Year, they're in year five. Year five. And uh, I mean, he's having a, a great experience. You know, he loves it. Um, his wages are a little bit lower than, <laughs> than the minimum. But anyway, Next up, we're going to have you do a collective bargaining agreement, agreement for Major, with Major League, League Rugby. rugby. That's next. But we'll talk about that I mean, off the air. Right, exactly. But but I mean, Sydney's having a great experience and it is it does have a different tonality to it than the NFL in, in some ways. But and yet this kind of always default, the kind of reflex toward just this capitalist impulse. It's like, well, we got to make a profit and that's all this is. It's something that's taken over professional sports uh, yeah. and even non-professional sports. Um, so I just, I just want people to know what a radical well, I appreciate you know, kind that. of culture creation you're you're participating in and helping to lead. It's you know one of the things that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and it it was in, it's almost so obvious that I didn't see it. Um, you know, I, I went from spending more than ten years defending the accused in the criminal justice system, and you know, near the end of that time, just feeling, especially during the pandemic, this real sense of despair, like you're screaming into the abyss about how messed up this is. And you're like, am I the only one that sees how, like, am I the only one that feels this way? This is very, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, you're like, you get to know this human being and you see their, you know, their moms and children falling apart as they're being escorted off to prison for 16 years for their first felony offense or whatever, you know, the situation is. And, and I, you know, I was really eager to be like, oh, we're going to do soccer, like soccer, you know, like, this is great. We're going to do sports. I know sports, sports is my happy place, you know, and, and it, it wasn't long before all of a sudden I was like, wait, like this whole world of sports is premised on buying and selling people. Like it, it was this like, whoa, like we get to cr- like yeah. the criminal justice system out of the roots of slavery. And then I go into sports thinking we're just going to talk about bouncing balls. And I was like, wait, no, no, yeah. no, no, we're buying and selling people. That's right. And, and what that creates is the same kind of callousness towards basic health and safety issues and yep. just basic human dignity. Um, yeah, that's well, very well put the, yeah, I call it the commodification of, of humans. I mean, it's just like, but it's all dressed up in this pretty bow of like sports that we love, you know, and, and it must be so wonderful to be a professional athlete, you know, and it must've been so cool to be in the NFL and, and it's like, can be pretty dehumanizing, you know, it's like you're, 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 you realize you're expendable. That's right. You know, so to, to, to create a different culture, but still quote unquote, play the game of making a league profitable is that's a huge, that's a huge thing, really. So when, when you talk about human dignity and work, you said something earlier that you had a campaign called no more side hustles. And I'm kind of interested in that. So our listeners know in the WNBA, which is the Women's National Basketball Association. I mean, one of the world's greatest basketball players is Brittany Griner. And Brittany Griner right now is 
in Russia being held captive and can't come back to America. You might wonder why is the world's arguably, I mean, one of the top 10 women's basketball players in the world. Why in the off season was she going to play basketball in Russia? She was the number one over pick, uh, overall pick, a three-time All-American. She's won an ESPY, seven-time All-Star, All-WNBA selection, a gold medalist twice, for crying out loud. Her resume can't be greater, yet she couldn't make a living playing basketball in America. In contracts in Turkey and in Russia, of all places, are seven to eight times the amount that Americans are paid. Could you talk more about what the Players Association is doing? I I love that language, no side hustles, that if you want to commit to soccer, be the best soccer player that you could be because, you know, I got news for people. Professional sports are year-round. It's 365 days a year. These people do not get out of shape. But Back in the 70s, even when the NFL had been around for 50 years, I mean, players still had off-season jobs. They don't have that anymore. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up, especially in the context of what we know about Brittany Griner. Um, we've been standing with our sisters in the, in the WNBA, and it's just been, I mean, devastating um, to follow that story. And, and we honestly can empathize with it because a lot of our players for a long time did go overseas and, in fact, went to Russia where professional, you know, professional sporting opportunities are more available to women in Russia, believe it or not, you get paid better there than you do here. And so what Brittany was doing, you know, these athletes for both basketball, soccer, or any sport, you have a limited window of time, mm-hmm. be an athlete. You know, if you're lucky, you might get 10 years, but really the average shelf life is probably somewhere from three to seven. And that's also your prime. Think of it. Your twenties and thirties are your prime, like I'm getting a law degree or a medical degree, or I'm building the foundation of a teaching career. I'm going to be a physical therapist or whatever. You're not doing that. In addition to, you know, to the limited period of time you have to be at the top of your game as an athlete, you are not building the marketable skills that allow you to then launch a different career that could last you a longer period of time. So you have to maximize your income during this window. And so what Brittany Griner is doing as one of the best players in the world is trying to maximize this window of opportunity she's got so that she can survive, not just now, but she's going to have to survive on this for the foreseeable future and figure out right. what her next career is going to be. And that's not something you just wake up the next morning after playing your last game and say, okay, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a salesman or whatever. Um, and so that's something all athletes I know have to do here in the NWSL wages were so low um, that players were working two, three, and four jobs in addition to training and playing during the season. And what happened with the, the launch of NWSL, so when the, the league launched in 2013, players made $6,000 over the course of a year. And the season was, you know, four to six months long for the first few years. So in theory, maybe you could go get another job the other half of the year to support yourself. But over time, the season's got longer and longer and longer. And what, what listeners need to know is that you don't just go to practice two hours a day, right? Like you get there in the morning, you probably have prehab treatment, um, you know, you, meetings with coaches, whatever you do training for two, three hours. And after that you have rehab, ice, uh, PT film. It's an all day sucker. 
Right. And you, you know, you're eating not so much team meals. And then like, you, you probably have film and afternoon meetings, you got a lift, you got conditioning, you got all that. I mean, it's a long day, not to mention that it's physically taxing. And so a lot of our athletes would get up at three in the morning and go work the front desk at orange theory, or, you know, finish training and hustle over to work as a barista. Um, one of the brightest people I know, one of our officers, we actually had a joke about how many, like she had the record for number of jobs she got fired from because she would never say this, but she's, she's very smart. She's very, that's the interesting thing about the athletes I represent. Almost all of them have college degrees, almost all of them from excellent institutions, you know, Harvard, Duke, Yale, Carolina, like NC state. I don't leave anyone out in North Carolina, but really good schools, all of them. Um, And they're accomplished and they're smart and they're go-getters. And so Emily would get a job, do really well. She'd get promoted. And she, you know, they'd keep promoting her. And she's like, no, 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 stop promoting me. Cause I have to be able to leave at a certain time to go to training or I have to travel, I have to go to whatever. Right. And eventually they'd promote her and she like, couldn't do the job they promote her into. And she'd get fired. Cause she's like, I literally cannot show up I, to that meeting. I have to go to Chicago or whatever. And so she, I think it was like 14. It was like some crazy number of jobs. You know, you Jessica McDonald, um, you know, single mom working in the Amazon factory, like 11, 12 hour shifts after training goes on to win the world cup in 2019 and still, you know, just an amazing human. So we're hearing all these stories in the course of preparing for CBA negotiations. And we were like, these, this is just antithetical to what people think about when they think of a pro athlete, when they think of a pro athlete, they probably think of a man. They probably think of a man who's, who's got a lot of money and probably a second home, you know, maybe travels in a helicopter. And like, what we're seeing is something very different And people need to understand when we're fighting for what we're fighting for in the CBA, we're fighting for 35 grand. (laughs) We're fighting for, um, we shouldn't be playing soccer on a baseball field. And it was helpful to illustrate and tell a story. Like I think human stories are such a more persuasive way to explain something than me as a lawyer sitting here going, here's our six point plan for the CBA. I mean, I had the six or whatever, but you know, that was the point of the no more side hustles campaign, which very closely aligned with um, what's happening, what we're seeing in, in our country around labor. Yeah. Uh, you know, people are saying there's a labor shortage, but there's not, there's a good job shortage and workers are yeah. fed up and they're demanding just dignity of work. And that's right. It's one of the reasons that we felt strongly about affiliating with the AFL-CIO. We became the AFL-CIO's most recent affiliate last fall. Um, And we're really proud of that because, you know, workers stood with us as we went through what we went through. um, And we have committed to standing with them. We sent the Portland Thorns to the picket line to stand with the bakers who were on strike Mm -hmm. uh, last September. And what's interesting is I've heard bakers talk about how powerful it was for these women's pro soccer players to show up and actually Bella Bixby, who's like six, two goalkeeper, like literally stopped a Mack truck on the picket line. And wow. I mean, it was just really, it was really powerful and also very scary. But, um, what was really interesting is after that, how the players reported back to me, how powerful it was for them mm-hmm. to see like the, this, you know, this man's been working for this factory for 30 years. And all he wants is to keep the same health insurance he had before the, yeah. the company wants to cut it. And, you know, it just, it was really it's interesting because I think our athletes in a very particular way can illustrate the struggles of not just working women, but working people. Yeah. Yeah. I really, um, I'm really so grateful that you took us here around kind of the, 
the contemporary labor movement and questions around work and just human thriving. And, you know, um, I think one of our, the things that we realized over and over again are just how athletes, uh, especially revenue athletes in, in college and, and then pro athletes are kind of like, they're separated from the rest of, of culture, almost like, well, they're this special class of people, almost like they've got it so good. They get whatever they want and they get away with things. You know, they don't get in trouble if they do stuff wrong or whatever. And I think one of the reasons why the name, image and likeness stuff has changed is because of those stories where people started to realize, like, I mean, and that's part of what John and I've, you know, been talking about until we're blue in the face is just stop for a minute and think about it every other college student can get a a job right and say hey here are my experiences and here's why I'll be good at this job but an athlete can't do that Mm -hmm. they can't they can't benefit off of the fact that they are an athlete that that's one of their greatest accomplishments they can't capitalize on one of their greatest assets. Mm-hmm. This is America. Everybody else can do that. Why shouldn't they be able to do that? And I think the more players began to understand, hey, what's happening to us is a bigger kind of story around the way capitalism can treat workers and can extract value from people and the way American capitalism in general always wants to go to the lowest common denominator with the cost of labor Mm -hmm. because because this country was born in free labor slavery and so there's always this impulse to how how much can we get away with not paying our workers and so a lot of what you're saying has echoes of what's happened with with NIL and in collegiate sports right now and that workers that, you know, those, those athletes in college, they're workers, <laughs> they're working, right. you well, know, anyway, that whole topic of name, image and likeness is fascinating actually in our context. Cause I mean, just to, not to drop back to the CBA, but I guess there, this is a, mm-hmm. something we're really proud of, which is that um, in this first contract, players have taken back their own name, image and likeness in the NWSL. And what's interesting is that, I think there's tremendous commercial opportunity. Part of what's happened in our league is like people have seen women's sports as a charity and they've failed Mm. to appreciate that there actually is. Now here's the capitalist argument. There actually is a business case. There is a demand for women's sports. There are people who want to consume it and, and spend their money on it and buy their replica jerseys and go to the games. And, you know, there are sponsorship dollars that would benefit from getting in front of those target demographics. And so they're actually the flip side of this. There is a business Mm -hmm. case for this that has been ignored because of sexism. Going Deep will be right back where we're having a great discussion with the National Women's Soccer League Players Association Executive Director, Megan Burke. Welcome back to Going Deep. Megan Burke is our guest, and she's the executive director of the Players Association of the National Women's Soccer League. Players can individually go out. We, we want every single player to go out and get every individual endorsement deal they can, to your point, to maximize every opportunity they've got. 
to make money on their own name, image, and likeness, which is theirs. It is inherent to the person. And if it's marketable, good for them. What the Players Association does is we package the group NIL. So the group is defined as four or more players together in a series. And what we're finding is there's a tremendous commercial appetite for things like video games, trading cards, mm-hmm. replica jerseys, you know, where people are really excited to get to know these athletes in a different way. And the players are actually... I would contend the players have more commercial value than like the team IP, for example. Um, We're seeing it in the marketplace. And I think that that's going to be an interesting pivot as we get into this whole world of NIL. It's actually on the one hand, it is a, it is a commercial, it's a, it's a business argument. It's a kind of a commercial market. Like, you know, there's the, there's the capitalism piece that you were talking about Mm -hmm. on the flip side. There's also this like, your name, image, and likeness is inherent to the person. It's yours. Yeah, it's it's yours. Right, it's yours. Yeah, and no one else should really be able to exploit that. Right, assign it to them because you you think it's in your best interest, like they do with the PA, and it support. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've I've been learning a lot about this, and and it's been a fascinating tension. Yeah, it is. A, it's it's the white way to put it. A fascinating tension. And when I was when we were more earnestly working in in student athletes' rights, and I should just say athletes' rights. I don't even like that term, student athlete. But kind of reframing what you just described for players themselves, like you're a commodity. That's the truth. You're in a capitalist enterprise. This isn't some favor that this school is doing for your family. You're doing them a favor. You are here as a, you know, you're here as this asset that they're going to extract all this value from you. How do you take back your agency and say, I'm clear headed. I get what this is. This is a business venture and, and I can play that game too. Right. I love, I love this game that we're playing sport, uh, the, whatever the sport is, but also the fact that it's fully commercialized is something that athletes are learning more and more about. Okay. That's a game I got to play too, if I'm going to do this. Yeah. And, and that's part of human dignity in, in a capitalist economy is that we each have the asset of our of our labor, of our ability to do things, of our creativity, of our uniqueness or whatever. That's all you've got, you know? (laughs) So I love, I love how you playing with both sides of that. You You do have to. And I wonder, because I've always heard this argument and around women's professional sports, it's such a circular argument. And I remember when I was, I just graduated from college and I, I won an award, the NCAA woman of the year. I was one of the 10 national finalists. It was the first year that award was ever given. It's amazing. So I was one of 10 people there and, you know, Althea Gibson was there, Robin Roberts, you know, and, and there was all this talk around like women's sports is, you know, we're going to, this is going to be the Heisman trophy of women's sports, you know, of course, I don't think it's that. I mean, nobody nobody can tell you who the NCAA woman of the year was this year, probably. But but Amazing. at those kind of conversations with some of those women who were pioneers, pioneer professional athletes, they talked about how much they were just caught in the centrifuge of their people that love to come watch, their people that love the sport, their the games are exciting, you know, all the things. 
but there's always this kind of establishment argument of like, well, we'll start giving you more exposure when you're profitable. That's right. Well, you're not going to be profitable without the exposure and the buy-in. So it's like, they're always just caught in this circle. And I'm wondering how, how do you address that and where you are right now? Well, it's interesting because I, I would, I mean, despite not getting the exposure, for example, and by exposure, what I would mean is like marketing dollars, like U.S. soccer's investment in them as a team and as a players, the U.S. women's national team has actually been more profitable than the men. And we, yeah. they've left money well, on the table. While we're on that, just I don't mean to interrupt, but can you talk about the differences of separate the U.S. national women's team? Because they're court argument where they just won $24 million was kind of going on at the same time you were in this collective bargaining. So could you, as you talk about this, kind of separate the two as well, but also kind of tell us where they overlap? Yeah, for sure. So um, so the U.S. Women's National Team is the best players in the country, arguably the world, um, who represent our country in international competition and their employer is the U S soccer federation, which is the governing body of soccer in the United States. Um, they've been wildly popular. You know, everyone remembers Brandy Chastain taking her shirt off in the nine world cup and Mia Hamm, I too will have two fillings and, you know, all that kind of fast forward to Abby Wambach's header off of Megan Rapinoe in the 2011 world cup and the 2019, you know, championship. So, you know, you sort of know these personalities, um, you know, partly, I mean, look, the strength of their personalities, right? Like Abby Wambach and Megan Rapinoe, and they're just forceful people and funny. And, you know, Julie Foudy has a podcast, Laughter Permitted, that you would love. And, you know, these they're just very gregarious and likable and um, interesting. And so they've, I think, brought a lot of people into, like, women's soccer fandom, you know. Um, and through that, we've launched these domestic women's professional soccer leagues. So I use the analogy, like it's the difference between team USA basketball and the NBA, like in that equation, you know, U S women's national team is team USA and WSL is like NBA, right? Like we're a domestic pro league. And so a lot of those internationals play in NWSL, um, Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, Mal Pugh, Becky Sauerbrunn, you know, Rose Lavelle all play in NWSL. Um, we've had a very odd arrangement and this is where people get tripped up for the, for the first several years of NWSL, us soccer actually funded and managed NWSL. And so those players played in the NWSL as their, as a condition of their employment with us soccer, which meant that the U S women's national team players association represented them for purposes of their employment with us soccer in both international competition and NWSL. That was through a system called allocation that went away in December of last year. Wow. As of this year, and it's such a, we all love it. As of this year, everyone who plays in NWSL is represented by us, the NWSL Players Association. So Becky Sauerbrunn, Megan Rapino, Alex Morgan are all members of our PA, of NWSL PA. And in fact, Alex Morgan is a player representative. Um, and I just want to point that out because I think, you, know, you did say something earlier. It's interesting because like, it's true that like Alex Morgan, Becky Sauerbrunn, Megan Rapino, they're going to, if we didn't have a CBA, like they're going to be okay. Right. Like they're, they're doing all right. They're wildly successful businesswomen um, who've earned everything they've gotten through us soccer. But I will say that they, if they heard that, they'd say, well, wait a second though. Soccer is a team sport and we can't stay at the top of our game without a, an elite 
domestic pro league to play in. And it's not an elite domestic pro league without 12 teams comprised of 26 people on each roster who can play at that level. Even though we're separate players associations and there's kind of some structural distinctions, they are very much a part of what we've done, where we've gotten to. And I think there's, that's such, I think the, the picture of that is that Alex Morgan, who um, is a mom and a star athlete, a businesswoman, you know, who's vying to get a spot on the next world cup roster is a volunteer player representative for the NWSL players association. They do not get paid. It is thankless work. And she's engaged and shows up and weighs in and cast votes and represents her team. Well, she doesn't have to do that. Mm. She's doing it because it matters and she cares about it. And so I think that just, it's a unique feature of, you know, Becky Sauerbrunn was, you know, we were in touch during CBA negotiations, like Becca Rue, the executive director of the U S women's national team PA, it, it was very much the brains behind us figuring out how to launch a group licensing program. And, you know, we were in touch basically every day, during CBA negotiations. In fact, I almost convinced her to come to Asheville and sit in a room next to my office so we can negotiate our CBAs by Zoom, like at the same time. I was like, it'd be so much fun, you know? Um, it didn't actually happen, but you know, it's very much, they've been on parallel tracks. And so even though they are separate, I think it's important to point out there's so much solidarity um, between the PAs and the players that that's kind of how that's, how that's come out. Um, so I can't even, it was, I, get, I can't remember where the question even started. I kind of got off on that hand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that was a good. It, it, you explained no, that, a lot to me. I didn't realize the you the United the the national women's team, the US NWT, the US Soccer Federation was actually for a period of time paying some of those elite stars to play in this league and that you've separated that. I can't believe that there has been any other league that has done yeah. that or I've I've never yeah. heard of that. And separating the two is interesting. Your language is I've always thought in the NFL, every person, every player and every coach, I didn't like it, but I felt like they were independent contractors. Mm-hmm. You know, football is the only game in the world where the same people don't play offenses, play defense. And there's kind of two different teams and it it, it never felt as connected. But what you're saying is just the interconnectedness that an Alex Morgan or a Megan Rapino would say, I'm not going to be a superstar player if I don't have right. a great team, great teammates, but also this league. Right. I'm not sure that's language you, I've heard in the NFL. I, you know, that's interesting. Um, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that, but you know, I think there's a lot that I take for granted in working in the soccer world because you know, soccer is the world sport. And what's interesting, yeah. you, know, you commented earlier, like, uh, and you're right that soccer took off on, on the heels of title nine, but you know, the reason is because it was cheap, right? <laughs> it was colleges were like, Oh, we just buy a bag of balls. And like, right. You know, and that's why it's played worldwide right. as well. Exactly. Right. You could go it's anywhere and it's the people sport, you know? And so I think part of that is the nature of the sport. And in fact, I mean, if you're a rugby fan, I, I had a, <laughs> my college boyfriend played rugby and the coach would often say that, you know, Megan, uh, rugby is our barbarians sport played by gentlemen, but soccer is a gentleman's sport played by barbarians. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, right? Like soccer is kind of this wild, interesting sport um, where cultural identity is certainly 
manifest through the style of play. And so I think what's interesting is the way in which like women have embraced this sport in our country. And I think it it's almost like, I, I don't want to say it's unexamined, but it's kind of just, if you play soccer in the United States, maybe it's because of who launched it in the seventies, eighties and nineties, but you just buy into that fall. Like you just, you just do, you just care about your, like your team. You, you just, it's just the way it is. Like you pay it forward. You try to make the game better for the generation behind you. And I, I've been asked that, like, why is that the case? And I, I don't know that I have a good answer other than it's just how we grew up. It's just how we were built. And maybe that's a credit to the pioneers of our sport. There's something singular about soccer in this country. It's it is one of the only opportunities girls have had to play on a team of that size. You know, basketball teams are smaller, and I mean, I think cross country is a, a team sport. You know, we we all you know we got to score and all that stuff, but but it's not that many people. It just doesn't have the same kind of force of of collective will kind of that soccer does and maybe in closing in terms of what you're up against with this kind of circularity around exposure and profitability and then you're going to get the you know the the support of the powers that be around really promoting this sport do you feel like you've got some real challenges there or do you feel like the the big boys are 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 signing up to support? You know, it's a great question because this is where I'm glad to have taken a decade detour in my life under the law to come back to soccer because, you know, I can appreciate that many things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's true in the answer to this question. Uh, I think we have a lot of work to do. But what's interesting that that, that where I think things are shifting is that what we saw players do in the past, at least the past years, they're taking their power back. And, And I think that it's been presumed they're powerless. Right. And this is a charity and you should take what we hand you and you should be grateful for it. And don't say anything critical because it might bring the league down and we might fold and, you know, hold on. This whole business case is kind of tenuous and look at how many people are in the stands and all that. And what we're seeing is, I think, also part of a moment in history where things are shifting. You know, there's greater consciousness around corporate responsibility. There's more access. So, for example, like, Whereas you used to have to figure out what was the cable channel that the game was going to be on and you got to go into the 300s and whatever. I mean, I could pull up a game anywhere, anywhere on the world on my phone right now, live or on replay through out of football. So, you know, and it's a decent quality. Um, there's through social media and apps, we have greater access and there's greater attention. Mm-hmm. There's greater scrutiny. And there's also, I think, greater opportunity where people who, have been reluctant to kind of take advantage of those platforms are now seeing when a player, Alex Morgan has more followers on Twitter than I think the league and the PA do combined. I mean, (laughs) by probably a multiplier, Um, you know, players are understanding like they themselves have fans and a platform and an audience. And I think owners and the league and the Federation are, are starting to understand, oh, like these players have some leverage. They have eyeballs. They have, you know, a, a, a platform, and maybe there's something we should be thinking about different. Maybe there's a relationship with them that needs to look a little differently than it has in the past. And I think I'm starting to see that shift, at least in NWSL. Um, you know, I got really tired last year of hearing 
people say, well, we all want the same things. Like, stop saying that because I want to see what you're going to do and show me. And what's happened is that a new commissioner has come in and the new commissioner was selected with input from the players. That's never happened. You know, when I talk to D. Smith and, and Terry, they're like, how did you do that? Like, we're like, well, we just started screaming bloody murder about how awful things were and we issued demands and there was only one way through, which was they had to work with us if they wanted to work through this past year. And so, you know, that's different. We have a joint investigation pending where I think both sides are starting to see the value and the challenges of, of doing something like that together, but it's really innovative and hopefully going to help us transform our spark sport and clean it up. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.